Hello everyone and welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm your host Andrew Mentzel, aka Menas, and I have a star-studded lineup for this week's podcast. Later on in the show, I'll be talking to Ian Chappell about his top 25 Ashes players since 1972. And I'll also be talking to Fiona Bollin about the Women's Ashes Day-Night Test that took place last weekend at North Sydney Oval. But to kick things off, I'm really thrilled to have on the show one of Australia's most respected sports writers. He is one of the leading journalists at the Courier Mail in Brisbane. He's also one of the stars of Fox Sports Backpage TV show. Now I have the great pleasure of welcoming to the show Robert Craddock. Hi Robert, how are you? Very well, Andrew. Yes, you can sense the temperature building, can't you, for the ashes? I must say, it uh, it never dims that that uh, the countdown, the Brisbane Test. You know, it's it's wonderful. Yeah, now I'm really glad you could come on the podcast because you know I was I've been reading your cricket writing for a long, long time, and I remember for many, many years you used to follow the Australian cricket team around, seeing pretty much every game they played. How long did you do that for? I did it from uh, 15 years, from 1993 to the end of 1997. And when they won the World Cup, I raised the World Cup in Barbados. That was farewell to to Glenn McGrath. And it was also my last stint on the road uh, for Australia. Really loved it. You know, my career sort of roughly spanned the same morning. So... It, it, it was, and you know, in a, it was a microcosm, of course, of it. It was off the field rather than on the field. But, but I was, he's, I got to, to cover Warney from very close to the start of his career to the end of it, and it was just wonderful. You know, there was so much flavour and bites, and they were huge personalities. You know, Shane Warne said this, Shane Warne said that, Glenn McGrath predicted this, Stephen Waugh, endless fascination with the War Twins. They're a great story. So many contrasts. Mark liked to bet. Stephen never bet. Steve used to carry his camera around everywhere. Mark never used to own a camera at all. So they're a lovely, lovely time to be involved. Yeah, it's funny with the War Brothers, you know, if you'd picked either of them to sort of move away from cricket and not have anything to do with it, you'd have thought Mark War, you know, he'd never be a selector. He'd never be um, still involved with the game. And Steve might have stayed involved. Yet they've gone the complete opposite direction. It's a very astute point you make, Andrew, and one I've never even thought of, but you're right. I mean, Mark was the sort of a gambling man who married, of course, Kim, the horse trainer, and it took no imagination to, to picture him just walking away from cricket, you know, whereas uh, Stephen was the cricket absolute tragic, wasn't it, who made a bid on Victor Trumper's test cap, who used to have dinner with Bill Brown, the former uh, Bradman-era opening batter when he was in Brisbane, and gets, I, I think it had a lot to do with the illness of Stephen's wife, Lynette, who had a stroke. And uh, Steve was very, very much aware of being around for his young family as Lynn sort of rehabilitated herself. And that he's done, you know. And uh, But they're still endlessly interesting. You know, you, I, I like the fact you can have a blue with Mark about something, but he never holds a grudge. You know, next time he's up and at him, <laughs> that's why he's such good fun. Um, and, of course, great o- o- observations about the game too. You know, deep thinkers in there. Uh, Mark's a punchy, quick thinker. Stephen's a deep thinker, and uh, but but uh, I think that Stephen's son Austin will come through the system beautifully. He reminds me so much of his dad, right down to the fact that when he runs between wickets, his shirt comes out at the back, which is extraordinary. Yeah, it's like watching a time warp, seeing a young Austin uh, bat. It is amazing. What what's the relationship been for you with the players? I can imagine when you came onto the scene that players even in that generation were more skeptical of the media but now they're more aware of how important you know promoting the game is 
Yeah, but it's a shallower relationship. I remember, see, in the early days when we started, you never had to ask permission to interview anyone. You'd ring Shane Warren up in his room and say, can I come up to your room? i just got a five questions to ask you. And the management and the coach the next morning would read the press to see, oh, they've obviously rung up so-and-so. You, know, like, you never had to ask anyone's permission for anything. It was fabulous. And you did get to know the real people. I remember once walking into Stephen War's room in Christchurch and he had a photo of his foster child from Colombia who he sponsored for years and years beside his bed. And, and, it, and it pointed out a, a soft and mellow side to a very hard man. And they're the things you don't get today. Access is, is much easier in some ways today, but everyone gets the same stuff. You know, they have press conferences, you put your microphones down, and you don't feel you know the real person. Like several cricketers, like I've got no idea what they're like. You know, uh, Michael Clark went through his career and I never felt I knew him at all. And, and that's just the way of the world. So it, it has changed, but you could, back in the old days, you see guys from six to seven in the bar everyone had two beers journos players or seven till eight before dinner and you there was an education you felt you were learning about the game just hearing darren lehman talking about fast bowlers it was great and did you have any uh, blow-ups with the players any of them give you a really hard time yeah look i did and and uh, i've still got a photo at home of michael atherton asking me to go behind the scoreboard at bellarive oval <laughs> in hobart and giving me the absolute once over and uh, for a story that appeared in the Herald Sun about the, the Poms being unhappy about their touring schedule and I said I agree with every word for, for you except I didn't write it and uh, he later <laughs> apologised to me and we've become we're not good mates but uh, but we, we you know he, he I, I whenever he comes back to Australia I show him the photo and he always says yeah you deserve it you know mucking around but oh look heaps of them you know um fell out with guys and exchange sharp words here and you know you'd catch Alan Border at a grumpy moment and he might give you a bit of a serve <laughs> strange enough the guys who had the big blues with the guys who ended up with the deepest respect for often like I, I I'm a tireless advocate of Alan Border and all he did for Australia I can still remember as a young journalist my palms started sweating in the Gabba press box when Alan Border walked to the wicket against the West Indies because it was Border or bust People can't relate to those days anymore. But it was, if he, when he got out, Jamar, that was it. It was all over. And the pressure on that man, when he wasn't named in Australia's team of the century, I, I, he was 12th man. I just felt so disappointed, you know, because he, he, he deserved it. He never changed his home phone number. And so I went out and I thought, why is he so short on the phone? And then I went out to his place one day for an interview. His phone rang about seven times in 20 minutes. I thought, that's why. <laughs> so when I've read your writing, I think you really understand the fabric the flavor the the smells the essence of what's going on in the australian team so i want to ask you what you think about this current australian team what is their essence you know what what makes them tick yeah look i i can't pretend that i'm close to this australian team so don't tour like I used to, but I think that this Australian team is still going through that quite insecure and quiet state. Mm. I think when you've got three outstanding fast bowlers like Hazelwood, Cummins and Stark, and they may be remembered as three of the best Australians ever had, you have got a chance to take your team somewhere. But from good to very good. Um, and now the other word is great, isn't it? Which you cannot achieve unless you've got a great top order. And Australia just haven't. 
Mm-hmm. I think the art of patience and technique in batting is gone. I, I really do for, for for a lot of modern players. The averages just aren't what they used to be. And, and that's why we're seeing guys playing test cricket with first-class averages of 35. I remember when that... If you had a first-class average of 35 for your state, you're officially vulnerable to being dropped. Now guys like Bancroft and, and these guys are a chance of playing for Australia with that sort of average. So... Yeah, it's come down, but uh, you can still be a good batsman. I mean, look at the averages of Warner and Smith. That shows it's still possible to go big, but yeah, the batting's just not there. And how do you think Smith has taken to the captaincy? Oh, he's one of the most intriguing characters I've ever met, and certainly the most intriguing test captain, because I'm not quite sure what to make of him. Uh, We've mixed with him on the back page, and I found him the most delightfully unpretentious character. He sits in there and joins the crew as if he's just the most unpretentious, no raps on himself. He's been that way all the way along, yet there must be steel in him. There must be times when behind closed doors he says to bowlers, you know, that's not good enough, mate. You've got to be there. So I'm interested. I haven't seen that side of him, but it must be there. I like the way he owned up over Ed Cow and Sackman. He said, "Yeah, I, I played a part in that. I, I you know, that that's good. I, I think he's the right captain for the modern day because back in the seventies, it was all bravado, wasn't it? Mate, take a cement peel, harden up. I don't think today's kids will cop that. That's why I think a more subtle, silky S. Smith is a is a good good way to go. Do you think the criticism of his body language on the field is warranted? Yes. Yes, 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 it is. And it's just that everything's replayed, and, and and you know yourself, any person listening to this podcast who's ever held a job, when your boss goes, oh, really? In front of a million people watching on television, that's no good. I think it's a, a deceptive mark of a captain to hold their nerve, and that was what Mark Taylor was very good at. You know, he was he was not a teapot man. He, he just... You never quite knew whether he was having a good day or a bad day. And if a bloke bowled a bad ball, he'd just get on with it. Steve, Steve's working on that. He puts his hands in his pockets and he squeezes his thumbs when he gets anguished. Uh, tries to hide it, but it doesn't come naturally because he's emotionally, he's a very sensitive sort of guy. Yeah, I wonder what his shelf life for his captain is because, I mean, he's, he's such a young man, but the, the pressures mm. on the captain now are so great. I mean, he could yes. play the game for Australia for a long time, but how that'll wear on him and how he'll handle the captaincy over what could be a decade. Yeah, look, Alan Border did it for 10 years and said that he reckons five would be the maximum for the blokes who followed him. And and so it proved, really. I mean, for guys like, you know... um, Taylor, War. uh, Taylor, War, Ponting, Ponting, Clark... You know, they were about that, that mid-range, about half of, of border, weren't they? Yeah, Ponting was and probably so, the longest. Yeah, he was. But none of them have been have had as last as long as border. And, and that's a good thing, you know, because there's so many other games. There's 2020 cricket. The schedule's so tight. Uh, Kerry O'Keefe once said about Steve Smith, the player, that being an eye player, which he is, you know, he's, he's not chained to this rigid technique. He's got an incredible eye. You should, sometimes they can go quickly. By players, you know, they they burn brilliantly for a number of years, and then suddenly it's not there. And, and Kerry's as good an analyst as uh, I've seen in cricket, so I noted that sentence, and you sort of watch for it. But look, he, he's in his late twenties now. Um, there's no reason he, he couldn't captain the team for for another five years, maybe longer. But yes, uh, he did a book signing tour early this season, and even before the season started, I, I looked in his eyes and thought 
he does actually. He he looked tired, and I thought these are the challenges he'll face along the way. You know, let's um, focus on the first test. Now, I know you're up in um, Queensland, so you've got a really close-up view of Matty Renshaw. There's been a lot of talk that he looks out of form, that his spot in the side um, is coming under question. How, how, how have you assessed his start to the season? And should we be concerned that, you know, Anderson and Broad, when they get that new cherry, might actually be able to um, find a weak, weak point in his game? Yeah, or, or the opposite could be heartening. Like, if he can exist at the Gabba first morning for an hour or an hour and 20, in a way, and, and Anderson brought her out of the attack with the 800 wickets between them, that's a victory of sorts. And, and I know uh, this will sound overly sympathetic towards his cause, but he may make 27, but if he batted for 90 minutes... <laughs> 27 is never considered a test pass mark, is it? But on the first warning of a Gabba test on a semi deck, Anderson and Broad, if Australia were one for 67, it really could be. As Matthew Hayden said the other day, the scenario Australia desperately doesn't want is to be four for 32 first morning mm. of the Gabba with Broad and Anderson two each. So he's concentrated hard on letting the ball go. He has not found the right tempo yet because 52 runs for the season off about 230 balls is unders. I think we all get that. But he's learning. He's developing. I remember watching Matthew Hayden going through a similar period where he just, everyone said, oh my God, can he hit the ball, please? And But it was good. It's part of their growth, you know, and... Uh, I, I I so hope he's in the Gabba Test team. And I, and I think, look, he will be dropped at stages three in his career. They all are. Ponting was dropped. S-War, M-War, they were all dropped at various stages. Bradman was dropped. Batsman just goes through it. But I'd be hanging on to him for Brisbane because I reckon, particularly in Adelaide against that swinging ball under lights, he, he's a good at just letting balls pass. So, yeah, but he's interesting. And you, you've spoken to him. How's his mood going at the moment? Because one of the, the great images from last season was his big smiling face and the way he sort of took to test cricket with this love and passion. Is that still there? Yeah, I think it is. Right down to the point that uh, about 14 hours ago, he was actually down at a little uh, club cricket ground, his club cricket ground, Turnbull, uh, talking to the under-9s, you know, and he, that's not part of his contract or even part of a Queensland Bulls request. The local, his local club said, you couldn't talk to the kids too, could you? And he said, yeah, great. I love it. You know, and he gets down there and he says, boys, watch the ball. It's where it all starts. And he gets energized by that. And I just thought he is one of the few who's plays it how it used to be played, really connected to club cricket. He was at their presentation night, Turnbull. He doesn't think he's above anyone or anything. And, 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 that sweetness to his story is a really nice layer. And, of course, he was from Sheffield, wasn't he, the north, uh, northern England, you know, where, where Michael Vaughan hailed from. And, of course, Joe Root, the, the, the family, Renshaws and the Roots are good friends. So there's all sorts of exotic layers to the first test. Yeah, and another Queensland uh, player is uh, Usman Khawaja. Is he the most relaxed man in Australian cricket? I think he, he's he's superficially re- relaxed, and, and at his best, he is relaxed when he's on top. But he also does live with the anguish of a very two-tone record. You know, he's terrific in Australia, but but it's just when I threw him bat overseas in Bangladesh, you know, he just he, I think he got run out in his first innings, and I thought that's not the cool cat we know. You know, I reckon he'll get there. I reckon he'll balance up his numbers. 
but he's the enigmatic player, isn't he? Averaging just over 60 in Australia and 27 abroad. I've not known a player who's had that sort of disparity between the two numbers, especially one born in Pakistan. Like, it's incredible. You'd think it'd be the other way, but there you go. He's enigmatic, but a very fine player. Yeah, beautiful to watch, and I guess with you know the dis- discrepancy in his record, it's going to be hard for him to improve it if he doesn't get picked overseas now, but on Australian wickets, he's one of the best to watch in the team. Yeah, it will be, but they do go to South Africa, and you'll certainly be picked there on their quick wickets, and I think that'll be the start of his rehabilitation. He's still got the time, you know, they'll be going back to India, and he'll get the chance, but yeah, footwork to slow bowlers, pl- plenty of finish their careers, better players of slow bowling when they start. Ricky Ponning, Justin Langer, Matthew Hayden, all struggled early against the spinning ball and just worked and worked and worked and, and, and then overcome it. So here's the challenge right there. All right, now there's obviously two spots up for grabs in the Aussie team. Everybody's writing and talking about it. What's your gut feeling on who will get the number six spot and the wicket-keeping spot in the first test? Very strong vibe that Peter Neville will get the wicket-keeping spot. Like, if you said now out of ten, with a couple of days to go before the team selected, I would say he's a seven and a half and eight. Yeah, that I, I don't think Matthew, Hay- Matthew Wade will be there. And it'll be up to Peter to be a little bit more, uh, have more of a presence around the team on and off the field. Some people don't think it's important, but the keeper sets the vibe. I mean, Australia, have a look at when Australia had their big surges, the 1970s, the 1990s, the 2000s. What started them? Well, guess what? Rod Marsh, Ian Healy, Adam Gilchrist. They were at the vanguard of the great offences during that time. And I think... Peter's not in their class, but he can certainly make a mark. And the number six batting position is so open. I've got, look, I've got Hilton Cartwright, a shandy in front of Glenn Maxwell, and I haven't ruled out Jake Lehman at all if he comes out and gets another century. But it's a, that one is, is pretty much open to debate. Yeah, I think it would be incredibly unjust if Maxwell wasn't given the chance on home wickets. You know, that century in India sort of displayed a maturity that we haven't seen before in Australian colours. And, you know, he is a hard wicket player. You know, if he were to come out and this English attack was a bit tired and the ball's coming onto the bat, I think he's someone that's ready to, to make his mark and he's good for the big stage. This is the biggest stage. So if you're ever going to give him a chance, now now's the time. Yeah, look, it's hard logic to repel, Andrew, isn't it? Uh he hasn't been in great form. Yes, he did make two sixties in his last Shield game. Before that, his form was very modest, you know, and he was actually dropped, wasn't he, out of the one-day team recently. So, look, if they go on a body of evidence. They look at about 10 or 12 Shield games back, and Cartwright's averaging about 50 or over that time, and even Peter Neville's runs are very good. But, yeah, look, I sense on home soil... It's now or never for Maxwell, but I wouldn't be shocked at all. I've never felt he's their favourite player. I just think they they don't fall over themselves to pick him in the team. And that's why I think he's the guy with most to gain in the last round of field games just by putting something really strong on the board. 120 not out. Bang, bang, bang. Pick me or else, you know, but but a little a little another half century maybe, but but it's interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure Smith and Lehman totally back Maxwell, and I just wonder if they really backed him for this summer, it might give him the confidence to just click into the next gear. Yeah, it's interesting. You said self-esteem. You know, uh, Steve Wall was the first captain to work out that 
it's not lack of ability that kills cricket teams. It's self-belief and feeling of belonging. And, and i never forget the day Steve Waugh said about Matthew Hayden. He's averaging 24 in test cricket. He will double that, I promise you. And he walked out of his press conference and Hayden heard about it. And from that moment, he was like a new player. You know, and he ended up averaging 50. So S. Waugh was right. But you've got a, a captain's self-belief in a player is one of the biggest things ever, isn't it? They feel that a captain understands and wants them. You know, it's big, lonely stage out there, and, and, and you know, you can almost see players lift. And uh, I'm not sure that, and, and for various reasons, I'm not saying anyone's right or wrong, but I'm not sure Maxwell has too many captains that have really believed and, and tried to nurture him, because he's, as we said, a different sort of cat. Now, before I let you go, Robert, I just want to ask you about this English team, what you make of them so far. They've obviously had a few injuries. Stokes has got massive question marks whether he'll be here at all. Yeah, what do you think of this English team? Are they can they spring an upset? Yeah, I think it. I, I think it'll be tight. I think they'll be right in. They've got a team stock full of all rounders, and that tends to mean that it, when you stock your team with all rounders, it generally means you're not particularly good or particularly bad. You can hold the middle ground, as in, you know, when you're four down for for a hundred, you're still a chance of wriggling onto two eighty because the lower order could that. But it also means that you take a long time to sandpaper through teams with the ball because you've got Mo and Ali sandpapering away and you're all around like Chris Wokes. But they're a pretty solid unit, you know. They're not too bad. And I don't even mind battlers like Mark Stoneman, who didn't even stand out in Sydney grade cricket, but he's a nuggety left-hander and who, who likes the pace coming onto the bat. And a real... He just could be a Brendan Nash sort of guy. Nash, he came over from the West Indies. He's a Brisbane boy, played with them, mm. and just existed. It really caused Australia a problem. So, oh, look, I think Australia will win, but uh, England hold the ashes, and uh, so you're half a test up, aren't you? And Australia wouldn't want to go down at the Gabba and put England one and a half tests ahead because, you know, I think there's still some soft spots in this Australian team. And I also think we've got three absolutely outstanding fast bowlers. But if one of them went down, suddenly Jackson Bird's in, and if another one went down, you know, someone else had come in, and, and suddenly it's real high-pressure stuff when you haven't got an all-rounder. And these blokes are bowling a lot of balls. So if I was England, my plan A would be keep them out in the, in the field for more than four sessions and something will happen. You know, some bloke will develop a bit of a strain or something. Yeah, the English team's interesting because there's a mix of players that we've sort of hardly seen play against Australia before. But then I think there's about six real match winners in that side, you know, Cook, Root, Anderson, Broad, Moeen Ali, Johnny Best. So that's sort of six players. If, if they fire throughout the series or even in certain spots, they could actually really push the Aussie side. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like a guy like Moeen Ali, you know, who's averaging 35 as a batsman in tests, and he's just, you know, like the thing about him as an off-spinner is, is he's not subjected to the sort of raw pressure that uh, Phil Tufnell was out here or, or any of their battling off-spinners because he's an all-rounder. So if he can get two wickets a test, you know, that might be a good job for them. I worry our batsmen will give him wickets like we did last series. You know, they try and get on top of Mo in Alley because it's sort of an ego thing with our batsmen and they end up, you know, hitting one straight to mid-off or something. Oh, they could. And, and, you know, look, you've got guys there like Johnny Bairstow, who admits he's not the best keeper in England, but he's averaging 40 with the bat. He can bat in the top six. I mean, that really helps you. It, it, it does because, uh, I mean, it just gives you... one. Th- it means that Jimmy Anderson, instead of having to bowl six over spells, can bowl four over spells. 
four at the start, four before lunch, uh, two after lunch. It, it just it, it just takes the pressure off their aging bowling attack, which they're going to need. They are going to need. They and uh, but but I'm watching Jimmy Anderson closely because he's been a great bowler, 500 Test wickets, just brilliant for a guy who, in his first press conference at the Gabba, I remember when he came here as a kid, he wouldn't even raise his eyes. We we couldn't understand what he was saying. He was just mumbling. Now and he doesn't to see stop him become talking. the player he's been. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Magnificent. Well, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm very envious that you're going to be there at the Gabba to watch the test unfold. Will be a great occasion. Enjoy and hope to catch up with you after the test. My pleasure, Andrew. Thanks for having us on. Uh, yeah, it came out off, off the middle okay, um, but the, the crowd just completely fooled me. Um, the guys on the hill kind of cheered like it was six, so I just went with it, and it wasn't until all my theatrics finished that the umpires mentioned that they were checking <laughs> to see whether it went for six. And anyway, um, yeah, as I said, it's the second most embarrassing thing I've done this test, and um, the other one happened when the ball hit me. So <laughs> anyway, that it is what it is. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> You're listening to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast, and I have with me now Fiona Bolland from The Swoop. How are you, Fiona? I'm very good. Women's Ashes rolls on. Yeah, and that was Elise Perry talking about what could have been a very embarrassing moment for her when she thought she'd brought up her 200 but actually hadn't. The ball had gone for four and not six. Uh, Can you imagine that moment when she thought, oh, my God, I didn't actually bring up the 200? The funny thing was she talked about the crowd and them going up and signalling that she'd got it, which was why she went off. But I think if you look back at the footage, you'll actually see a couple of guys in the crowd signalling a four. So she wasn't paying too close attention to what they were doing. And I think it was just a everyone feeding off each other situation, which led to her leaping in the air. And I think the first celebration, a little bit better than the second, because the steam had probably come out of it a bit. But as history will show, it'll probably be the, the initial celebration that gets played as the real one and everyone will have forgotten because it was just a brilliant moment. What a thing to witness. Yeah, it must have been a few nerve-wracking moments for her, though, when she was trying to get that last two runs, thinking, God, I don't want to get out for 199 now. What what an over from Megan Schutt. The amazing work to just keep blocking it and make sure she didn't get out because it was all over then, and I don't think she could have lived with herself if she'd lost a wicket and Elise Perry was stuck on 199 forever. I think that Women's Ashes test will be remembered for Elise Perry's amazing 213 not out. I'm not surprised that she's come through in one of the biggest moments for Australian women's cricket. Oh, not at all. She's an absolute champion athlete just in general. And I think a a lot of people are now comparing her to some of the great male players and just being one of our best Australian sports people that we've ever seen. And she'll go down in history. And she's got a long way to go. She's I think 27 or 28, so she's still got quite a bit of life left in her cricket career, especially that you consider the professionalism that's now coming in. That will only extend a lot of these female players' careers. So, And also I think she was instrumental in bringing more awareness to women's cricket. You know, When she was a dual international at, at a young age, she was, what, 16 or 17 when she first started playing for both national teams. That brought a lot of attention on women's cricket that hadn't been there before. Absolutely. I don't think people even realised there was probably a women's cricket team. And why she picked cricket over football, it, it's anyone's guess, and it's only 
her who probably knows what the real motivation was because back then it wasn't a financial thing, even though cricket now is the most financially sound female sport. And it's the greatest game of all, Fiona. <laughs> of course. Well, you menners would say that it was an easy choice for her to make, but I think back then it was probably a difficult one. And when the, I think it Canberra United, maybe, or Sydney FC had put the pressure on her and said, you've got to make a call, and cricket it was, and thank God for that, because of what we've just had. I think it was Sydney FC. I mean, Elise Perry plays for both my cricket clubs, both the Matildas and the Australian women's team. So anyway, what an athlete. She's definitely got the monkey off her back. She'd never scored 100 for Australia, yet she'd passed 50 in 23 of her last 35 one-day international innings. So I think she was probably starting to think she was never going to make a but now she is the proud owner of the highest score by an Australian in a women's test and the third highest score of all time. So a fitting record for Elise Perry. But apart from Elise Perry, I think it was a disappointing test match. Now, if you haven't heard, it ended in a draw. Australia now have six points. England have four points. Australia need two more points to retain the ashes. But overall, apart from the event, I thought the actual cricket was very disappointing. I think there was a lack of intent, and I think the pitch let down the event. Absolutely, and I think we're going to hear a lot more. Both the coaches spoke about it after the match, the disappointing wicket. They had a an inkling of what was going to happen throughout the four days before it even began when they'd seen the wicket. It, it wasn't prepared to the standards that they wanted. Mark Robinson has been quite upfront, the England coach that is, quite upfront about the wickets needing to be in tip-top condition for the female games. To and they make need more sure. pace and bounce in the wicket, a bit more of the ball coming onto the and bat. And that's what we saw on that final day. There was nothing in it. The ball was ripped apart. It, it was just lifeless. And the cricket we got was lifeless as a result. Matthew Mott uh, was quite strong afterwards, I think, in pointing towards England not playing how he would have liked and going after the runs on day yeah, one, which yeah. set the test back right from the start. And it put because England batted first, it meant Australia could only do what they could do, which was having to go out there get the score, get a big lead, and the result was one day to take 10 wickets, which by that stage, it just wasn't in it. I think it was a really poor performance by England on that first day. A real lack of intent. They showed some fear in their game. They didn't really want to take the game by the scruff of the neck. They only scored 235 runs off 100 overs on that first day. And I think that set the tone for the whole game. And look, Mark Robinson can come out and criticise the pitch, but his team did not play the right way in that first day. They're chasing the series. They're behind. They needed to set the tone and they didn't do it. And it allowed Australia really to maintain the advantage in this Ashes series now because it was really a must win for England and puts all the pressure on them going into the T20 series. Well, that's right. A draw has kept the series alive for them, but they have to win all three T20s. So they're in no better situation than what they were before the test. Going after the win was the best result for them. So why they didn't do that, we don't know. No, it's it's only up to them, but they certainly did not go out with intent on that first day. And the first two days of cricket were pretty slow going as well. Elise Perry did save the test. But for someone who talks about women's cricket needing to be a spectacle when the debate around women playing tests continues to, to swirl, that needed to be a good show and England didn't provide it. So it, it's an interesting contradiction, I suppose, in that he, he wants the best for the female game, but they didn't deliver that either. 
No, not at all. And 12,000 people flocked into the game. It was a great occasion. There was real atmosphere, real buzz around the game. You know, North Sydney Oval, so beautiful, the magic evenings there. Um, but I think many of the fans will not remember much of the cricket from the test, which is a shame, but hopefully, you know, they can play more tests. And that's been one of the discussions around this is that, you know, this is the first test Australia have played since the last Ashes two years ago. So you have to give both sets of players some leeway in that they don't play this form, so they don't know how to play. So I think they have to go one way or the other, Fiona. They either have to play more tests or no tests. But this one every two years is just not working. I think everyone would love to see more tests, but I'm not sure that we're going to see it. In speaking to some of the people a bit higher up, the thinking around the women's game is that it's in the short form and that is the future. So to bring in more tests and completely change how the scheduling is done at the moment, I just don't see it happening. They they think the crowds will come in for the shorter form and that's where the focus will be. So it's probably going to remain a one test every two years. And it's unfortunate that the players don't get that experience because they love playing it. The baggy green is still the ultimate for them, even though they don't play that often. That's the pinnacle of the game. And for Australians, getting that cap is what they start out doing. When they're in the backyard, they're dreaming about pulling that on. So for the women to only have that opportunity once every two years, someone like Ash Gardner, who just missed out on selection, one of our great up-and-coming young players, she's now got two more years to wait before she has a chance to get that cap. Yeah, and it's hard for you know fans or supporters to really get behind women's test cricket when it's not there. So, you know, you're right, it's becoming a limited overs game for the Australian women's team, and now they move on to the T20 series. All the pressure's on England. The first game is at North Sydney Oval, and then they move to Canberra for the last two. Can you see England winning all three? No, I can't. T20 is such a fickle game anyway. It can go either way. So to sit here and say Australia have the upper hand and they only need to win one and they will win one. To win three T20s in a row is a big ask for England, I think. They're a very good cricket team. They have the mentality to get there. But I just don't think three in a row is possible. It's a really big ask and there's some very talented T20 players in that Australia squad. The squad will come out on Monday for the Australian team, so we'll have an idea of who will be playing on Friday. But someone like Ash Gardner, who hits very big and at North Sydney Oval, she's hit it onto the roof before. So it's going to be a fantastic game. And Perry's in pretty good form after spending a lot of time at the crease. I'm pretty (laughs) sure she's going to be smoking the ball over the boundary in these T20s. So, listeners... Uh, the T20 series starts this weekend, Friday night. If you're in Sydney, get out there. It's going to be a great night. Hopefully, Australia can retain the Ashes with a victory at North Sydney Oval. And Fiona and I will be there to see it, hopefully. We will. Listeners, well, that was our wrap of the Women's Ashes Test. We're going to take a short break. And then I have the great pleasure of being joined by former Australian captain Ian Chappell. Old again to Chappell. Oh, it's a good shot. Fine shot. Just a little bit short. And Ian Chappell, a master of the square cut, putting it away quite beautifully for four runs, which takes him through to 150, 152 to be precise. All right, listeners, welcome to Cricket Unfiltered, the News Corp Cricket Podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled now to have on the line one of the true legends of the game, former Australian captain Ian Chappell. Hi, Ian, how are you? 
Good, thanks, Andrew. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Now, you wrote a piece for the Sunday Telegraph naming your top 25 Ashes players since 1972, and I thought we could have a little bit of a chat about that. Yeah. Maybe we'll start with the modern players first and work our way back. Um, you've, you've put two of the current top order in there, Steve Smith and David Warner. What was the reasoning of putting Steve Smith in there? Well... I mean, I admire the way that he's gone from being a a, a leg-spinning number eight when he started his test career to what he is today, you know, one of the better players in world cricket. Now, I understand and I have a bit of empathy for uh, his feelings. He he says that he always wanted to be a batsman. Well, I have empathy for that because when I made my first tour to South Africa in 66-7, Bob Simpson was very keen on me being a middle-order batsman and leg-spin bowler. Uh, but what Bob didn't know is that ever since I was old enough really to understand uh, much about cricket, I wanted to be a number three batsman. So I, I have some empathy there for Steve Smith. And, and I think it's also an indication of how mentally strong he is that, that he's been able to say, right, this is what I want to do. And the other thing is the way he plays. He, he has his own style of playing. A lot of people say, oh, he's not this and he's not that. But he's able to just say, you know, just forget all of that and just get on and play his way. And it's been very, very successful. So I've got a lot of admiration for Steve Smith. And how do you think he's gone uh, as skipper so far? I think he's doing a pretty fair job. One thing that has surprised me a little, <clears throat> he does seem to... I won't say favour fast bowling because, you know, I think you could say that about most captains because, you know, fast bowlers do get a, a lot of wickets. But there have been times when I've thought that he's he's handled uh, Nathan Lyon a bit harshly when Nathan Lyon is bowling well. And I remember Imran Khan once said about captaincy, the best captains understand bowling. And I think he's he's very, that's very true. Because you, you can't win test matches without getting those 20 wickets. So I I think he's done a pretty fair job. And he has got a very good pace attack. But it just has surprised me a little that he's um, that he's perhaps been a bit harsh on Nathan Lyon at times when Lyon's bowling very well. Do you mean just sort of ripping him out of the attack early and things like that? The one that comes immediately to mind was, was last year against Pakistan in Melbourne. He was bowling beautifully and got a wicket or two just before the tea break, and I thought that Nathan Lyon had to start after tea. Uh, he didn't. The quickies started, and to be fair to Steve Smith, the quickies did the job anyhow. But I just thought that it was a little bit hard on Nathan Lyon, who'd, who'd bowled beautifully for him and got, you know, got the, those crucial wickets uh, just before tea. Obviously, this summer shapes as Smith's biggest test as captain, the Ashes, the pressure. Um, I think it's you know just going to be really interesting to see the way his body language goes under the pressure cooker atmosphere. Well, you know, there's a lot of rubbish talked about pressure. And if you look at it uh, realistically, most of the pressure is what you put on yourself. And I've always believed that if, as a player and as a captain, you set your standards, and, and if you're smart enough to be captain, then you're going to set your standards pretty high. Now, if you set your standards pretty high, then all you've got to do is meet your standards and damn what everybody else thinks. And, and generally, I, you know, I've, I've said to people, I didn't need to read the paper, listen to the wireless or, or uh, watch television to find out if I'd had a bad day. 
I mean, if I wasn't the first one to know that I'd had a bad day, then I was a pretty dopey captain. So I think that's the way Steve Smith's got to approach it, and there's a fair chance that that's the way he does approach it, because that's certainly the way he approaches his batting. So yeah, I mean, there's always pressure on a on an Australian captain, and it doesn't it it doesn't matter whether it's England, West Indies as they are currently playing, or whoever it is. There's some pressure on you, but you'll relieve most of that pressure if you set your standards high and then if, if you don't meet those standards, you, you try and work out why and try and correct it. You've also got David Warner on the list and you've written he's a match winner. Do you like the combination of Renshaw and Warner as an opening partnership? As long as Renshaw doesn't get bogged down. Uh, and so far I've been impressed with Renshaw from the point of view that his first test match in Adelaide, he really struggled to get off strike. And, and I'm probably talking mostly the second innings where he, he really got bogged down. But everything I've seen him do since, just in, in his practice and then in the matches, he's realised that he's got to be able to score more singles and particularly on the offside. He's very strong on the onside, not so strong on the offside. But I think either he's worked it out or someone said to him, listen, mate, this fella down the other end, he needs to be hitting the ball pretty regularly. You don't want to have him sitting at the other end, chomping at the bit, waiting to get a hit, because that's the worst thing that can happen to a guy like Dave Warner who wants to get on with it. So as long as Renshaw understands that and he's able to keep getting singles and keep giving Dave Warner the strike, then it's a good partnership. And think about it this way. It's a good partnership for Renshaw because he doesn't have to worry about his strike rate because Warner's doing plenty for him at the other end. And as long as Warner's at the crease, Australia never has to worry about its strike rate. So Renshaw's sole job is obviously, number one, to stay there. Number two, make sure he doesn't get bogged down and keep Warner away from the strike for too long. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, uh, you've, you've, got a, you've got Ben Stokes on your list and you wrote that he could become England's best modern-day all-rounder. Do do you think he should come out for the Ashes at some stage or or do you think it's just finished now, this this series? Well, that's got to be dependent on what happens with the police investigation. If if the police find him guilty, then there's no way that the ECB can bring him out here. I think it would just cause too much of a public outcry and, and with good reason. You know, if he's guilty of whatever it is he's found guilty of, then... You know, he's got to he's got to suffer some sort of punishment, um, and he's got to suffer a cricketing punishment as well as a public punishment. Uh, but if he's if, if they do find early enough, if they find that he's not guilty of anything, then you know I would imagine the ECB will probably uh, uh, suspend him for a couple of test matches or whatever it is. But I mean, if they were to find in the next week that he's not guilty, then. I, it wouldn't surprise me if, if Stokes is out here and playing, say, in the third test match. Yeah, it's because it's, it's like they're losing two spots, you know, that aggressive batsman down the order and a really handy seamer. So there's going to be a big hole there without him. Oh, it's a huge hole. But England, are, you know, certainly everything they're saying publicly, they're taking the right approach. We haven't got him and we're planning as though we won't have him. And that's the only thing you can do. Yeah, I remember people quizzing me when Dennis Lilly had his 12 months off with his bad back and people were saying, oh, you know, how are you going to make up for Dennis Lilly? And I said, well, we, you know, one person can't make up for Dennis Lilly, but we've got four bowlers. And if those four bowlers do 
25% better, then that'll make up for Dennis Lilly. <clears throat> so that's got to be the approach from England. Not one, one guy is not going... You, you can't expect Wokes, for instance, to, to come in and completely fill that gap, that, that, uh, that void that, that Stokes leaves. Mm. But, it, you know, if Wokes and uh, probably it looks like Craig Overton's going to get a game, and he, I've, I saw him as an under-19 cricketer. He's a good cricketer, that kid. And, you know, Jimmy Anderson and Broad and all those blokes, and then and certainly the top-order batsmen have got to play their part. So if everybody plays their part, then you can cover for Stokes, but it won't be easy. Yeah, I think bruised egos are a big thing, and I think a lot of the English players, once they've been, you know, written off as not being able to win without Stokes, it'll fire them up a bit. Yeah, I mean, people are motivated by different things, and uh, some are motivated by criticism. Some just have their own way of motivating themselves. But, you know, the, the, to a degree, if, if England are written off, if they've got, you know, if they've got the guts and the determination and obviously the ability, then that sort of thing should rile them and make them play better. Now, you mentioned Dennis Lilly before. He was your number one pick for the most uh, valuable Ashes players since 1972. I think now that you know, he's been retired for a long time, maybe there's a generation of, of fans that didn't see Dennis Lilly bowl. Can you sort of explain what made him so good? Well, he had a lot of skill, and, and, and like all good cricketers, but particularly bowlers, he, he never stopped learning. You know, he, he kept evolving as a bowler. I mean, when you you go back to him originally, that '72 tour of England, he had a he had a well. I used to describe his run up as being like a man running, trying to elbow his way through a crowd. It, it wasn't a pretty run up, but he was genuinely fast in '72, pretty well all the time. But he then, you know, he had his back problems. He came back. He learned how to sprint properly. He finished up with a beautiful action. He he didn't bowl fast all the time after that, but he could still deliver the odd quick one and he learned how to cope with all those changes so that that was one thing about him very very smart you only ever had to tell Dennis something once never had to tell him the second time uh, probably the, one of the greatest things I could say about him as a player for a captain he never ever asked me for a defensive fielder not once if he asked me for fielders it was purely put another slip in get that bloody bat pad in closer it was always an attacking option. So he was always thinking about wickets. He was never thinking about his own average. It was just, how do we get these guys out? And, and okay, so that's talked about his, the ability side of Dennis Lilly. But then there was another very important part to it. If a batsman was able to overcome all those skills, and not many did, they then had to deal with his iron will. And I'll just recite one example, which to me perfectly epitomises Dennis Lilly's iron will. The final test of that 72 series, uh, I'd said to the team before, we, we'd played pretty well, and I thought we were the better team. But we were 2-1 going down into that last test. And uh, I, I said to the team before the last test, uh, you know, I think we're the better team. But if we go home 3-1 down, I can't possibly come out and say we were the better team. But if we go home 2 all then I think I'm entitled to say to the public, we were the better team. Anyhow, Dennis got 10 wickets in that match, but after he got his fourth wicket in the second, he got five in the first, fourth in the second, and, and bear in mind it was a six-day test because the, the result of the series could be uh, decided 
so you always played an extra day in those times. And they were about England were about 240 in front when Dennis got his fourth wicket to give him nine for the match. We all gathered around patting Dennis on the back and he stopped us and he said, listen, we can't let these bastards get any more runs. We've got to get them out now. 240 is going to be a difficult chase on this pitch. Alan Knott was in his 60s and Alan Knott was a damn good batsman and a, a, he used to play like French cricket. He was, he was very hard to bowl him because he had his pads in the way all the time. <laughs> and Dennis, by this stage of the tour, had bowled a hell of a lot of overs. And he, he certainly wasn't bowling quick. And he ran in and he bowled this delivery to Alan Knott. It wasn't the quickest delivery he's ever bowled. It didn't do a lot, but it clean bowled Alan Knott. And it was just sheer willpower. Dennis had decided this innings has got to finish now and I'm going to be the bloke to finish it. And so that's what I'm talking about, this, this iron-willed determination. He was always the last player in our team to believe that the match couldn't be won. And did you chase down the 240? We did. We got him with five down. Uh, so that so we were able to level the series at two all. And I was then able to come home in press conferences and say, I think we were the better team. Now, um, you wrote about Doug Walters that he achieved great success on 80 fags a day and very little sleep. <laughs> um, I, just, I just wonder about characters like Doug in the dressing room, how important they are for the fabric of of dressing rooms, you know, getting the card games going. How, how important is someone like that? Well, so important that I've, I've always said I would have hated to tour without Doug Walters. And, and, that, and that was only in part because of his great ability. I mean, as I say in, that, in my column, he scored three test centuries in a session. Now, they don't keep the full records. They only tend to keep the records of the, the 100 in a session before lunch. So... We'll never know, but I would say outside of Bradman, there's probably not too many guys who have done it three times. Uh, so he was an incredible player. But and then and he wasn't the worst bowler around either. He was a damn useful bowler, and particularly if you needed a wicket, he was a good bloke to bring on. He had 49 Test wickets or something. Yes, he did, and probably you know I'm probably as guilty as any captain of under bowling him a bit. Um, he, he was he was one of those guys that, that I should have bowled more. But then, then there was the Doug Walters in the dressing room. And, you know, he kept, he kept the dressing room loose. And you imagine you're away in England, for instance, in those days, it was a five-and-a-half-month tour. So you can go pretty stir-crazy in five-and-a-half months, you know, living in hotels, being in dressing rooms a lot. So you need characters like Doug Walters to keep things loose. And I've always said about Doug, he, he drove you to the point where you either wanted to belt him or you burst out laughing. And fortunately, cricketers aren't really fighters, and so we'd laugh at him. But, I mean, he could be an enormous pest in the dressing room, but in the end, you'd laugh. And this was, this was very important in keeping the, uh, keeping the dressing room loose. But it shouldn't be misunderstood. His card playing, certainly as it pertained to match day, shouldn't be misunderstood. Because whilst Doug was playing cards, he was—he always knew. I—I I always felt that if I'd have gone to Doug and said, "What's happening in the game out there, Doug?" He would have been able to tell me. Because he's a, a very, very competitive person, no matter what he was doing. So, he, and he was very perceptive when it came to cricket. So he would have known. And the other thing I'll say about him is, once he put his pads on, he wasn't playing cards. He was—he was sitting there watching the cricket. But terrific bloke to have in your team, uh, both as a as a player and as a human being.
Now, uh, you picked Mark War in your list, but you left out his brother Steve War. What was the reasons behind not including Steve War in the top 25? Well, I've said in the column that uh, that I didn't want selfish cricketers in the team, and I always uh, viewed Steve Waugh as a selfish cricketer, particularly when he came back into the Australian side. Not so much in his early days. I thought he was a very aggressive, competitive... He was always competitive, but I thought that he became a selfish cricketer when he got dropped and then came back into the team. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I just felt that if I didn't like uh, selfish cricketers in the team when I played, why am I suddenly going to start putting them in a, you know, in, in basically my team that I'm choosing. Plus, I thought, uh, I remember Tony Gregg saying on commentary one day, I was on commentary with him, and Tony Gregg said, oh, Steve Waugh's the best all-rounder in the world. And I said, hang on, Tony, he's not even the best all-rounder in his own family. You know, I, I always thought Mark was the better cricketer, and certainly I enjoyed watching Mark's cricket more because he was flamboyant. Again, a, a match-winning type cricketer. And there are probably not many guys that you would say about them. I could go to the cricket and just watch him field. But Mark Waugh was one of those. I, I used to just love watching Mark Waugh in the field. Not only for his ability, but he, he reminded me a bit of Doug Walters in this aspect, that he was always looking for a way to get a wicket, whether it be via a catch or whether it be via a run out. And, and it, stands in my, it sticks in my mind. Mark Waugh at Silly Mid-Off occasionally... And the guy would play the ball down into the ground. It would bounce up. And Mark wouldn't catch it. He'd just bat it back at the stumps, just in case the guy had happened to was stupid enough to lift his foot or come out of his crease for some unknown reason. But he was always thinking, how can I help this team by getting a wicket for them? And, and Doug used to do the same thing in the field. You're crafty. With Steve Waugh, though, don't you respect the way he sort of brought new meaning to the baggy green? Because when I think of passionate Australian captains, you know, I think of someone like you and someone like Steve Waugh, that sort of culture that he brought back to Australian cricket? Well, I mean, I I think we're very, very different in a lot of ways. And we're certainly very, very different when it comes to the baggy green. I mean, yeah, to me, yeah, I've always said uh, I'd probably put the price up a a bit now, but I used to say it's a $5 piece of cloth. It's probably, I don't know, 20 bucks now or 50 bucks. But, you know, if, if an opposition is intimidated by a cap, then they're pretty, they're pretty ordinary cricketers. And, you know, you, you, you're selected for Australia. I mean, I, I have not got a baggy green. I've never had a baggy green from the day I retired because I've never, ever felt that I've got a look at a baggy green or look at a photo of myself to remember what I did. I know what I did. I'm comfortable with what I did. But I don't have to be going around telling the world, look, I played for Australia. Um, Anyhow, that's, you know, everybody's different. Uh, But I just think there's a lot of rubbish spoken about the baggy green. Well, a fascinating discussion, Ian. Thank you so much for your time. It's a really interesting list. I encourage all the listeners to go out and find it. Um, Lots of great stuff there. Before I let you go, I saw you last summer commentating on the Big Bash, and what struck me was that someone that's been around for so long, been so successful, probably doesn't need to be there commentating on the Big Bash. And I just wonder, do you still love being at the cricket and working at the cricket as much as you did in the past? Andrew, you'll know when I've stopped enjoying uh, commenting on cricket because I won't be doing it. Excellent. Well, I hope to catch you out there uh, during the summer. 
Okay, look forward to it. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Well, listeners, what a thrill for me to have Ian Chappell on the podcast. And that's it for Cricket Unfiltered this week. We will be back next week with a full panel show gearing up for the first Ashes test. There's going to be banter. There's going to be excitement. And it's all going to start next week with the Ashes kicking off. So thanks so much for downloading the show. Thanks so much to Robert Craddock and Fiona Bolin and Ian Chappell for coming on the podcast this week. And remember, rate, review and subscribe to the show and we'll be back soon.